Welcome to Rising Stars, where Miriam Knight, publisher of New Consciousness Review, interviews exciting new voices in the world of progressive and transformational books, films, and ideas who offer intriguing perspectives on life, the universe, and everything in between. Join us as we celebrate the conscious awakening and explore many expressions of consciousness in action. everyone and welcome. I'm Miriam Knight and I have two fascinating guests with us today, Ron Meyer and Mark Reeder. And we will be talking about their equally fascinating visionary novel, The Atom Enigma. Ron is a successful novelist and movie and TV screenwriter and producer. He wrote and produced four feature films and his educational TV programs have appeared on PBS National Television and include the best-selling DVD, The Great Indian Wars, from 1540 to 1890. Ron has a fourth-degree black belt in Aikido and is a world-renowned fossil collector. Mark Reeder works as a writer and associate television producer, and his programs have appeared on PBS National Television as well. He is the prolific author of short fiction, including a young adult fiction series known as the Mark Holiday series. Welcome, guys. I'm so glad you're with me today. Greetings. How are you doing? Okay. Thank you for having us. Oh, you know... It's not very often that I get to read a novel. Uh, Usually we focus just on on nonfiction books. So it was a real treat to read your novel, and it was such a wonderful thriller that incorporated both profound messages, magic, and and a real kind of nail-biter, page-turner. So I want to thank you for that holiday (laughs) It's called The Atom Enigma, and it really kind of goes back to basics of who we are as a species. What are our capabilities? What gave you the idea for this novel? Well, um, this is Ron speaking. I produce educational series and entertainment series, and a couple years ago we did one on miracles, Mm -hmm. and... Part of the idea was, you know, how, how, uh, what, what, what's the common basis of a miracle? And it's usually some sort of communication from what we might call the other side or another world, which doesn't operate by the ordinary rules of ordinary life and physics. And then I did a series on, on uh, human geography and its power, the power of place to transform and transcend. And it's a, it's an interactive thing between people and place. So combining those two, I got paid to do the research, which triggered the idea of uh, let's look at sacred places, which is part of both the world of miracles and the world of human human geography. Well, the novel centers around the phenomenon that arises around a cottonwood tree in Arizona and the shrine that develops around it because people receive um, healings. Have you ever been to um, shrines like Lourdes or or Majigori? Yeah, I have. Um, I've been to the Medicine Wheel in uh, Wyoming. Do you know of that place? Mm -hmm. No, I don't. 
it's a it's it's a sacred i believe maybe sioux native american it's on top of a hill in the bighorn mountains and it's a spoke and there are other medicine wheels and i went up there once and had quite an experience i've been to the jokon in tibet and that that was a very profound experience i had there the monroe institute are you familiar with that place absolutely in Virginia. So the minute I walked onto those grounds, I had, I shifted into another state. So one of, one of the ideas we're, we're playing with is that when you cross a threshold into one of these places, you know it. How about you? Have you had a few? Um, I had an interesting experience in Bethlehem. I went to the Church of the Nativity, and in front of the church in the portico, there is a big slab upon which it was, um, the, the legend attached to it is that this is where Jesus's body was laid out to be washed um, in preparation for his uh, burial, uh, wrapping in the shroud. And pilgrims would come and they would pour water onto the slab and then use handkerchiefs or, or cloths and wring it into little bottles to take away. And out of curiosity, I put my hand on the slab in the water and my hand started buzzing, and it was buzzing all day. It was absolutely remarkable. So I think this is a great example of this combination of place and the intention or the connection of the people. Um, you know, Miriam, we're losing you right now for some reason. Okay, I will speak louder. Is this better? Much better. Okay. So we missed that last little part of the combination. I don't know if you want to repeat it for the audience. Well, it, like I, I it. thought it was, sure, I thought it was a combination of the um, the mystery of the place, the sort of portal-like um, energy of the place, but also the energy that was put into the place by the pilgrims repeatedly. So that's exactly, you know, the sort of thing we're dealing with in the book, as you probably know. And Mark's had his own experiences, which are slightly different. Do you want to go ahead, Mark? Well, yeah, my, my experience is since I'm descended from Native Americans uh, on, on my father's side, um, my experiences are more uh, like visiting Harney Peak or Mount Shasta or the Medicine Wheel and having that profound experience, much like what you described, where there's a feeling of a doorway that allows you to step into a different place or a different world uh, and receive some sort of intelligence from that world, whether it's, um, it's a teaching of some kind or just a feeling that uh, describes something that you need to do in your life. So I've had a, a couple of experiences like that, and uh, they've, been, they've had a profound effect on me as I've grown older. How would you say that effect actually manifests in your life? I'd say the 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 biggest um, the biggest manifestation of it is coming to grips with who I am as a person, being fairly emotional and not being able to understand why or what that was doing to me, and then having an experience uh, through that doorway of opening up uh, why uh, I'm emotional and actually how it, is, it can become a strength in my life instead of having it uh, be a detriment. 
Mm-hmm. So what did your experience do for you? Well, in the Holy Land. <laughs> at the end of the day, I um, left corporate finance and uh, became a healer. And eventually came to the States and uh, became a publisher of uh, New Consciousness Literature magazine. That's, that's, a, that's a big shift. And, and I think that this shift is happening everywhere uh, more and more. I mean, people like you who are in, in the world and beyond it as well, you're, you're kind of straddling uh, both sides of a divide that you're enabling to come together. Yeah, I can give you one. You know, one one of the things that it opened up for me. You might notice that I'm used to being the interviewer, not the interviewee. <laughs> uh, but this, this opened up a kind of space for me that I enter into when I go and talk to people who I'm interviewing, whether they're physicists or biochemists or human geographers or people who are searching for Bigfoot. That I can I can open open that world up for them as well, and they speak with great clarity in a way that puts them at ease, and um, I get remarkable material out of them. And when I noticed I could do this, I began to want to see, can, can, I, can I have other people, you know, do that themselves or create that space for them under certain circumstances? And, and, and that was probably the biggest change for me is that it, Changed entirely how I interview people in my line of work. Hmm. And of course, that does come through in the novel. Um, oh, absolutely. The character of Jonathan Ramsey, for example, is a is a person on a mission of inquiry throughout his entire life. And uh, I like to think that a lot of the character of Jonathan Ramsey is is based on uh, on Ron's experiences. Ron might disagree with me on that, but uh, when I was helping to write that character, that's what I would draw on. It is. It is. And then you notice the novel opens when he crosses the, th- the threshold, and this is where he gets the calling, right, to mm-hmm. pick up where he left off a while ago. And that's also an interesting thing, because a lot of people have had experiences of a numinous character, and felt that they were so far out of their frame of reference that they ignored them or, or pushed them down into the subconscious. But they do have a way of popping back up in, in later years. That certainly happened with me. And I like novels like this because it's really a call to the reader to to remember and to reconnect with that which they perhaps have forgotten or to give themselves permission to um, to experience the mystical and the magical. And, and it's, it's a kind of calling to, as we say in the book, to pursue what we call, you know, the essence of the archetype you were, archetype you were supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And, and if you don't, and, and Jonathan, because he ignores it or is not ready at times, the main character... He pays a price. There's a price to pay if you don't follow your calling. At least that's what we're saying in the book. And I think that people can certainly 
agree just by reflection that there is a price to pay of regret when you don't follow your calling, sometimes a greater price. Guys, in the book, um, you have a very interesting character uh, who pops up in many different guises. He's kind of an archetype. Tell us about him and why you chose this this character and how you decided to portray him. So, we have, there is this idea that these synchronicities and coincidences occur in your life. You probably everybody's had these, mm-hmm. and we wanted to put a face on them, and that this character or these events that occur that arise spontaneously and they don't follow the rules of normal physics in the normal world are represented in virtually every culture's literature. And Mark, you want to describe Hermes and the different forms we put him in? Well, yeah, we we put Hermes in about 10 or 11 different forms during the novel, and I don't want to do any spoilers, so I won't uh, <laughs> go into those in detail. But the the character, I remember when Ron pitched this idea to me, and I was thinking about it, and I have a, a madcap friend back in Cincinnati, uh, uh, Lou Hoffman, who has that kind of Hermes energy to him, uh, an almost in-your-face but all, a lovable kind of character. Mm-hmm. And so I, I started thinking about her, uh, Lou and Hermes and sort of based uh, the Hermes character on my friend Lou. And the result was that we developed a sort of magical realism that goes with the Hermes character that allowed the novel to literally enter the other world through him and through uh, his actions. Well, get, get, why don't you give us a couple of cases where he shows up in two different forms? Well, there's the the, the first time anybody meets... And, and he shows up as a woman at least once. He, he shows... Uh, he, the first time we meet him, he's at a... Uh, uh, a... a, a a Society of Creative Anachronism event in New York City, and he's playing a um, he's playing a foot soldier in a, in an army. And so his what he does there um, is directly uh, uh, part of his role playing this character. Then we meet him again later on. Uh, he's in he's. Uh, uh, in a, a gay bar in Austin. And so you can see that we have this character is able to transcend from uh, a medieval type an, an, uh, anachronism to uh, a modern day uh, uh, world event or a part, of the, uh, part of the modern day world in Austin. And that's what made this character extremely interesting to me uh, for writing, uh, especially for describing him or also doing his dialogue. So he's also known as Loki or the trickster, and his job is always to take people across the boundary between the two worlds or bring messages from the other side to this side. And these messages are often very challenging to accept. Um, How do you think that um, people can be aware when, because as you say, this is an archetype, Um, how should people uh, react to these interventions, uh, recognize them for what they are? That's that's an interesting question. You know, a lot of people 
think that a lot of spiritual practices is exactly creating the ability to become aware of these things when they occur. You're familiar with the famous one that um, Jung wrote about when uh, this woman was unable to uh, communicate and she was just in a great depression. And then she told the story, I believe it was, of a particular sort of beetle that was in her dreams. And in that moment, a beetle just like that flew into the room and landed on her or something like that. And that woke her up and completely changed her. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is an interesting example of how, how something like that happens and then transforms you. So my own sense of it is that as you become, the more you do this, the more you become aware of it. One of the things now, that we wanted Hermes' character to do was to be a little bit out there uh, as a as not only a character in a novel, but as this person who can help others transition. And we wanted that experience to be unique for each person. And so we we try. That's why we tried to make the Hermes character be different so many times, so that any reader who read the book could, at some point, we hope hoped, could look at the Hermes character and say, "Oh, now I get it." Now I understand what's going on. And it's also a force that's moving moving things along, moving along the evolution of us, of our consciousness. It's, it's, it's a gateway to, to that experience and the drive that's, that's occurring in the universe. Do you, do you understand that idea? Yes, you also had an interesting uh, comparison of free will and destiny. Um, I, I think that comes into play here as well, doesn't it? Okay. Um, so Mark Twain was famous as a person who believed uh, in, in destiny and fate, and yet he railed against it his entire life because he disliked the idea that we were um, fated to do things. So... You can you can take a look at the character of Jonathan Ramsey, for example, and he he honestly believes he has free will, and in a sense he does have free will because he has the ability to reject his calling, whatever it, whatever it is. But the calling also has free will, and so the calling is going to say, "I'm not going to let you off that easy," and makes it more difficult for him. So in a sense, you can look at something as being faithful or has karma behind it or directionality directionality but also we do have the ability as humans to ignore that or to reject it at at our peril sometimes uh but we still have that ability to do so you know it's, it's the basic calling to the hero's journey you get the calling and you go to the other side and you come back with the wisdom ideally but often you don't you don't get the calling, and that calling is 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 probably the the fate side of it, and what you do with it is your free will. You might also that's say the way that we, destiny. We're playing it. You might also say that destiny is the destination, and how you get oh, there is your free choice. I like that. That's a nice that's a nice way to put it. Well, we're going to have to consult with you on the next book. <laughs> so, it, so I'd like to have Mark read read something to you from the book that kind of capsulizes 
you know, the essence of what we're doing. Is that okay? Uh-huh. We got time? Sure. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah. This comes a little bit later in the book, but I don't think it's a spoiler. Ramsey has, is actually... Um, Ramsey's the main character. Ramsey, Jonathan Ramsey is uh, in a church, and he's just had a, 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 a interesting experience in the church, and a young woman is talking to him about it. I know what happened, she said. I could see it. You felt the love of Jesus. He's been holding the door open for you to the other side your whole life. It's like your sacred places, the thin places to transcendent that Thomas Merton talked about, that opening to the other side. That's what lingered after Jesus died. He's not alone, you know. There have been many others through the centuries. Zoroaster, Moses, Buddha, Muhammad, Baha'u'llah, Weshaba, and then it goes on from there. That's uh, very, very poignant, and and I have a quote that I want to read later on, but um, I don't want to take the time now. So um, the the Thomas Merton uh, mystic, he was he was a wonderful Christian mystic. Um, he talked about uh, the places that perhaps have a thinner band- boundary between here and the other side. And yeah. this is something that you talked about uh, extensively in your book, and obviously you, you've researched it. Um, what do you think is the mechanism there? That's, that's is, it, is it Gaia? Is it the, the traditions of many people? Is it the ley lines? What is it? You know, my, you know, in the in the book, I don't think this is a spoiler. It's it's represented by a by a, a coherent field, energetic mm-hmm. bioenergetic field. Does that need elaboration, or is that good enough? So, is it generated by the planet or by the interaction of the people and the planet? Because I think the people and the many planet. People because many people consider that the planet itself is conscious. Yes, I know that. And and that may be, you know, just the sense that there's a, a connection to the other side through the planet. Mm-hmm. But, what, but what I think Merton was was getting at is that, and this is something we're we're definitely pushing to, is that is that people who join their consciousnesses, uh, as it said in the Bible. In the, where Jesus says, I will be there too, that if mm-hmm. they join their consciousness, that'll open up that doorway to the other side. So I doubt yeah, whether, you know, if there, was, if there were no people, there'd probably be no sacred places on this planet. You need the people to make it work with their consciousness. That's my idea. That's been my experience. Yeah, and certainly that is what comes through in the book. So, how does that sit with you? <laughs> that is very much what I experienced in Bethlehem, um, and I think that the the story of Jesus uh, originated from his birth in Bethlehem, um, and really took root in the consciousness of the inhabitants and in the consciousness of the the believers afterwards 
and it's almost like it keeps it alive and keeps on strengthening the the um, the thought forms, the the energy of the place. Um, and, and yeah, absolutely. You wonder if um, there are power places in the world um, that exist in isolation of people, and I think you would argue no. Or would you? I would. Mm-hmm. It's the interaction between consciousness and place, and what, and probably what happened there at that place at a given time for some people, many, maybe many people. But I'm also beginning to get the idea that people who gather together in a particular way can produce that opening themselves independent of the place. And that's that's sort of what happens in the end in the book, as you maybe know. Well, one of the, one of the things to look at, too, is that that would be like a temporary portal. People can gather to create this with their consciousnesses create this temporary portal. But if you're talking about uh, like Bethlehem or Lourdes or Harney Peak and the Black Hills or something like that, then I then I think that, that there's a you we, we can apply the Gaia idea to it as well. That there are special places on the planet and it may take people to recognize them that they're there, but mm-hmm. they are there. So it's it's almost like a mobile hotspot <laughs> <laughs> to the divine. Um, guys, is there a website for the book, or is there a website you'd like to refer our listeners to? We have no website. Oh, my goodness. Have to talk to I guess to we'll you. have to create one. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, people have said, you know, we should do a teaching, but we haven't gotten around to it. Well, that's not true, Ron. Uh, Ron's being modest. He's actually done a couple of teaching with Integral, uh, with the Integral folks here in Boulder. Ken Wilber and, and Co? Uh-huh. I'm sorry? Ken Wilber's group? Yeah, yeah the, you know, at the Integral Center in Boulder. And, and had, yeah, had some great success with it in um, creating a space for people to, not necessarily to reach the other side, but to understand a, a, a uh, have a greater sense of their own potential. But but also to go to the other side, there was one guy at this workshop where I was, it's it's a series of exercises based on Aikido and my experience with enlightenment intensives and mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. And it's a combination. There's a lot of movement, consciousness, awareness among people. And there was an older gentleman there who was an anthropologist from the University of Chicago. And he all his life he wanted to have one of those openings or direct experiences of God or whatever. And he was able to have one, and he was so moved. And later, when you have these things, if you've had one, Miriam, you know, you, for a while you can speak with great clarity. And he, he told the group of his experience, and it was brilliant, and people were in tears. So, And this, this took place within a, a period of about an hour, and it was the power of the group. It wasn't me. Mm-hmm. But was it in, influenced by your... Did you go to the Monroe Institute? Have you studied there? I have not, but in the, in the series on miracles, I went there and interviewed people and, um, you know, the sort of thing you do when you're doing a documentary. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you done that, that, that experience? No, I ha- well, I've, I've had 
I've listened to some of their CDs, but I've never been there in person. Yeah, it's, it's uh, one of one of the one of my experiences I can tell you was that in terms of this human thing, uh-huh. um, I do. I was working on a series. I think Mark was there. We were doing it on snipers, and we went to a place in North Carolina where we we wanted to have a direct experience with some with some real snipers that just came back from Afghanistan, I believe, Mark. Mm-hmm. And there was a handful of young men, maybe about a, ten of them, and they mm-hmm. went through all their the ways they operated in terms of snipers and put on their camouflage and fired their guns and all that sort of stuff. But I quickly moved into this altered state that I was very equivalent to the ones I had at the Medicine Wheel and and at the Joe Con, and that sort of blew me away. And I was wondering, well, how how is that possible? Because normally when I'm around a lot of guns. People firing guns, it makes me pretty damn nervous. Sure. But this, this this moved me into that state. And these young men were quite extraordinary in their calmness. I, I presume they had killed people and were at peace with it, which is what you have to do. They're the opposite of, of Rambo. They're very calm. And they almost have a divine quality to them. That, that was what I experienced. So it was like, so this... This is not about this, this firing range where they're they're operating. It's about them as a group together being in a particular way. And I wondered how how could how could that be recreated? Because it was that would certainly be valuable to people if you could do that for them. So that got me into doing these workshops. I interviewed. No um, I interviewed a, a, a young man. Um, who had been uh, a decorated uh, veteran and uh, was working for peace. And one of the things that um, came out was this tremendous sense of love and dedication to his group, to his fellow soldiers. I mean, yes. there's there's such a strong bond of... I've got your back, and I'll do anything for you, and I know you'll do the same thing for me. It really is unconditional love uh, that could be the kind of travel mechanism to this state of peace and, and almost an altered state. Um, there's, there, there's always the, the negative side to the positive, and it's sometimes very difficult to distinguish between them. Um, so, no, I, I agree. This this was this was what was going on with these guys, and uh, it was quite extraordinary. You were there, Mark, right? Yeah. Um, and they were really good at what they do in terms of uh, how they camouflage themselves, how they how they use their weapons. So, and, I mean, if somebody find... wanted to have a workshop, I suppose they could contact you, right? Because you know uh, how to get a hold of me. Yeah, sure. I have your email. But I will guard it. <laughs> um, <laughs> unless somebody wants to contact you. Um, so, Aikido is a fascinating martial art, and it also has a lot to do with love, doesn't it? Its, it's, it's basic premise is that the conflict can be resolved in such a way that, let's say, the enemy or the adversary can come out safe and you can come out safe. 
they call it I key. It's a kind of relationship between two people in which that that happens when there's negative energy at play. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So, I, so I somebody's accept. attacking me, throwing a punch. Um, the, you know, and I can see that that's going to happen. I could move to punch them or kick their leg and cause them a great deal of pain. But is there a way that I can resolve this so that their energy gets dissipated, I don't get hurt, they don't get hurt? Mm-hmm. Some of that mm-hmm. can be done even before my own experience with this in third world countries and in settings like uh, Blue Island is that you can you can diffuse that by entering into that sort of space that I was telling you about. That you know, that's inter- people. Yeah, that that's so interesting in light of the present political spectrum, uh, political scene. Instead of trying to re- redirect violence, um, people are using it uh, against each other, and it it um, really gives me great concern for the future of our country. Yeah, I, was, I almost had a chance to go interview Trump. I wish I would have liked to experience him. <laughs> I really would have. What did you interview these people for? You mean, that, that's what I do. You know, I'm, I'm a documentary uh, film. I, I know. Was it for a particular documentary, or do you just sort of stockpile them and then create the documentary afterwards? Oh, no, it's always a project, you know, it's a design project. Like, we just finished one on um, behavioral science. Oh. So I get to talk to some of the smartest people in all these fields. And as you know, with the media, you have a certain leg up on people. Sure, sure. Of it's cachet. Yeah, one of, one of my favorite jobs ever um, was when I worked as a university um, uh, matchmaker. I was uh, matchmaking between university researchers and industry. And I went around, plunked myself in front of a scientist of my choice and said, okay, tell me about your work. It was a dilettante's dream. And did you learn something? Uh, I learned a lot, and it's remarkable how it sticks with you um, over the years. It's it was fascinating. Yeah, it, it it's it's a it's a great tool to be um, in the media because, as I was saying, somehow or another, the power of the camera is a great equalizer, not the gun. <laughs> You know, p- people who have made great discoveries, you know, saying, how do I look? <laughs> <laughs> that raises all kinds of intriguing possibilities. If we just walk, I mean, actually, in, in the whole Black Lives Matter movement, the camera has revolutionized relationships between um, minorities and the police. Yes. So, you know, you probably know that one of my ideas is that is that you could go into a an impoverished community, mm-hmm. and, and and everybody knows now that living in poverty really is a terrible thing for the nervous system, for the physiology of these people. And once they can't usually overcome as they grow older, 
so my my thought is that is that if you could create some sort of sacred place that they would create themselves, you would have an empowering impact on them and could create the environment which would be more nourishing, and they could um, learn to do stuff by themselves in a way they couldn't otherwise through that through that power. I'd like to like it to was, be able to do that myself and try it out. Uh, it was interesting at the end of the book when you. Uh, came up with the shopping list of projects that Ramsey um, uh, wanted to uh, institute in the community, that some of them are actually being done by uh, people in in the inner cities, like setting up banking and, and uh, uh, giving people access to uh, venture capital for entrepreneurial um, ideas. So, um, if uh, I'd love to talk to you about that, if you don't already know about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware. One of the um, things is I don't. Yeah, I don't think the Adam Enigma is necessarily ahead of the curve on this, but I believe that in the 21st century, there's a new movement afoot that's saying, "Hey, we can't look to the federal government to solve everything. We've got to learn how to solve." And that's what the book actually Absolutely. And we're going to revisit that theme in our last segment, which is coming up. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And we're back. And uh, your last comment was a perfect segue to this passage that I wanted to read from your book, uh, where um, the uh, Loki Hermes uh, figure is speaking to a group of Gnostics and saying, quote, What have you done with your God-given experience since you joined? You sit here smiling like inhabitants in the land of the lotus eaters. You chant Amen in sappy tones, eyes half closed, unable to see what's happening. You people don't get it. You must understand that this is the way it has to be and always has been. Stop trying to create harmony, peace, and tranquility. You experienced a gift from Adam, and now you're closing the doors he opened for you. The doors that took you across the boundary to the other side. A crossing that you must take again and again. Understand that it's never quite right, never completely safe. You are never complete. It's from conflict that all new and good things come. Accept it. Only then can you create a sacred space right here. Well, I thought that was so powerful and so appropriate. How did you come and to true. that realization? So, yeah. so there's a there's a Hafez poem. He's an Iranian poet from the uh, I believe the 11th century mm-hmm. that I uh, that I just found. I, I what something you mentioned earlier made it uh, had it come to mind. At any rate, he basically says the same thing. Even if our world is turned upside down and blown over by the wind, if you are doubtless, you won't lose a thing. So in times of conflict, if we can keep our faith, we will find the way through and we won't lose anything. And this is sort of what, this is another one of the themes in the book about if you have this experience of going to the other side, don't put it on the shelf. 
use it. Mm. And, and it does, like I think what it means, what we're saying there, is that if things aren't going to always work out for you, and that they don't, that's not a failing. That's the way it's supposed to be. That was one of the biggest realizations I had through through some of the openings I had is that this is this this is just the way it is. And you know, how many that, times have we all you probably had, had experience. that experience? It's, it's a different Absolutely. way of looking at these little troubles. Go ahead, sorry. Well, well, that that when we look back on it from a, a certain perspective, we see that it was the best thing that pushed us on to the next stage of our own evolution. Yeah, it's it's messy. <laughs> <laughs> Life is messy. It's darn messy. But and you know, I'm, I'm highly you, optimistic. But what do you think is is the purpose? What should we be looking for? Should we be looking for transcendence? Should we be looking for engagement in the messy, dirty world? You're, you're looking for those signs that will will temporarily move you forward, and then you know the the, the hero's journey is is from my understanding of it through Campbell's is something you do over and over and over. You go there, you get you get some insight, you bring it back into the world, you do something with it, and then it calls you again and you do it again and again. It's an endless process from what I can see. It's not like you arrive someplace where, ah, this is it finally. I'm going to sit on the and sing Kumbaya. You notice that almost all these these movies that have this kind of spiritual transcendent um, theme to them, Get to the point where they don't they don't know where how to, how to end it, and that is what's they don't know what's next. Well, then there's always something that's next. It's never done. That's pretty clear. That's the case to me, anyhow. Barbara Marks Barbara Marks Hubbard in her book on conscious evolution has this diagram of a spiral. You keep on coming around, but at a higher level of consciousness. Yeah, I mean that's the basis of whole integral theory, right? Yeah. That you know, Wilbur expounds that it's it's an ever growing spiral up to higher levels of consciousness. And the question is, are you discovering these or are you creating them? And that's part of, from my point of view, is that is that we're like following this course, we're creating what's next. We're not discovering it. So we have, we have a great purpose. So part of my take on this is that. Life is engagement, and my own personal experience in it is working with a low and moderate income housing development here in Boulder. Um, me and a group put together a uh, uh, an organization called the Maple and Home Association, and uh, the brought the members of that group together in a way that they could manage their own mobile home park where they lived and have the right to buy it. At some point, uh, the group that, that I was a part of uh, that helped with this, the leaders of that group, myself included, we had to just let that go and move on to the next engagement that, that was in our lives and let the mobile home park residents run that organization themselves. To have stayed just with that one project would have, instead of being in a spiral moving upward, would have been just simply moving in a circle in the same place. So I think it's a it's a process of engagement, and then as you mentioned, the spiral, and then as you move up the spiral, you move to another uh, new engagement. 
And, and if you know in the book that without, without you know, introducing the final spoiler, we do sort of answer, answer the question when we discover what's, what's, what Jonathan discovers about what he should be and what Adam discovered as to what, what he already became, right? Mm-hmm. So if you read the book, <laughs> you'll, you'll, get, you'll get an answer to that question to some degree. Um, maybe a complete answer. Can, can I push the? Um, can I promote the book slightly and saying you can buy it on Amazon right now? I don't think anybody had any question in their mind, but that it was available on Amazon. Eight hundred pound gorilla. It's also available at your local bookstore with probably twenty four to forty eight hours notice. So yeah. do not um, do not turn your origin. back on your local bookstore. Yeah. Um, and and actually, I really think that it is worth plugging this book because it was such a fun read, and it really provided food for a lot of food for thought. So well, we certainly had a lot of fun writing it, and uh, it was a, a it took about a year and a half to two years to finish it, and a lot uh-huh. of drafts and a lot of uh, introspection, uh, personal and together as a writing team. So. We very much Was enjoyed this your the first collaboration? It's uh, actually one of many collaborations. We've written about five, six novels together, and I believe this is the sixth. Yeah, this is the sixth one we've written together. Well, as they say, when two or more come together in my name. So uh, <laughs> find, right, do you find writing together a very different experience? Um Is the end product something that neither of you could do alone? I believe so, absolutely. Absolutely. I I write novels on my own, and while I enjoy writing by myself, I've I've often felt that my collaboration with Ron raises up my level of writing uh, a a little bit higher. So, uh, yeah, I I agree with what you just said. And I write uh, a lot of media. On my own, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. So, we, do you have a current project that you're collaborating on? We're starting one. Um, not to put the cat out of the bag or anything, but uh, Ron's recent um, experience uh, following Bigfoot followers uh, across the United States has thought. It has us leaning across the lines of a novel involving uh, Sasquatch. Fun. What, Fun. What's this phenomenon about? Hmm. Talk about group consciousness. There's about 4,000 people in the U.S., and their consciousness about following Sasquatch is quite unique. You know, there, there's this... Well, uh, I have a reasonably sane friend who <laughs> absolutely claims to have seen Sasquatch. In Oregon, uh, he, he or she is, you know, among many. Mm-hmm. Blew me away to uh, to see what this phenomenon is about. I mean, there's no doubt that there's many people that have experienced something that they're not lying, they're not making it up, and you can, when you look at their body language and when they retell the story, there's something profound going on. Seeing seeing Sasquatch is a transformational experience in itself for everybody. That claims it. So Absolutely. we're thinking of playing with, playing around with the idea of what, what is Sasquatch? What, what are the possibilities? So we toss these things around for a while before we come to some conclusion. 
are what, there a what lot of your, people it is. in your circles who are coming around to a more mystical uh, worldview? Say that again. I'm assuming that you travel in circles of writers and filmmakers and so on. Is there an upwelling of people who actually themselves have a mystical worldview? Well, in in the integral world, of course, they all do. And they're kind of saying, well, we've had our non-dual experience, what's next? And and many people are pointing to the, the group consciousness thing. But I also interview a lot of people that are scientists and reductionists. You know what I mean mm-hmm. by that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's the dismissal of the spiritual or even the psychological in some sense. But Yeah, I interviewed Michael Shermer just a while ago. So I encounter that too. And after I'm done, I usually get into a little debate with them about, you know, their reductionism. And, mm-hmm. and I'm beginning to see that they're beginning to say, well, maybe there is something else here because we can't quite explain everything. So I see a little shift going on there, too, which is very positive in my mind. And I think there's a larger thing happening. Mm -hmm. I think there might be a larger thing happening in the U.S. right now. The baby boomer generation is all coming of age, and they're the richest generation in history. And yet... Now they're coming of age and retiring, they're looking for something new. They're looking for something other than just uh, satisfaction of a good job and a lot of money. Absolutely. Well, we're, so this is we're a new phase to, for us. We're going to have to leave it there, guys. It's The Adam Enigma, a novel by Ronald Meyer and Mark Reeder. Don't miss it. You will really enjoy it. Hey, thanks guys, for having us Thank on. you for being thank with you. me. Thank you. Thank you. And join us next week on Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.